Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, with Pastor John King. Well, good morning, everybody. Again, we uh, the Lord's taken us through uh, that storm that was looming. You know, there was a lot of anxiety, and I, I, I pray that you guys would sense a, you know, a relief and that you can put that stuff out of your mind for a little while as we get into God's Word. Uh, today we're going to finish the first chapter of Ephesians. We'll be in verses 15 through 23. While you're turning there, or scrolling there, wherever you're going, uh, however you're getting there, um, I just want to kind of go over real quickly what we picked up on last week. You know, as we read that glorious passage, and if you haven't read it, read it for yourself, uh, verses 1 through 15, but especially verses 3 through 15, or excuse me, 14. Uh, we learned that in this passage was actually just basically one long sentence. And it rings like a song of celebration. A song of celebration. And there's more to come because, in fact, the first three chapters of Ephesians really gives us uh, the fuel that we have, the fuel that we can use to worship God because it's so packed with truth and love of God and the power of God and the riches we have as a church learning how to understand who we truly are in Christ. And that can get messed up sometimes. That can really, you know, depending on what's going on in your life, what the enemy may be trying to do, what you may be doing to yourself, you can really lose a, an understanding of really truly where you stand in Christ and just how much he loves you. And we, we learned this, be, one way we learned it is was by recognizing First, recognizing, so you have to change your mind and you have to change your way of thinking a little bit, but also rejoicing in what God has done. When you come, I, I said it, when we come for our time of song and praise and worship, that's a time that you can kind of, that's an outlet for us to do that collectively. And what are, we, what are we rejoicing about? The spiritual blessings of God. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about material things here, as wonderful as they are, but we're talking about the spiritual blessings. We praise the Father who planned our redemption. We were elected in Christ and predestined in love before the foundation of earth, before anything was created. He, you were on his mind. We praise the Son, Jesus, who purchased our redemption. Through his shed blood, we have full forgiveness of sins. And as the mystery of God's will unfolds, the mystery of our salvation unfolds, he gives us wisdom and prudence along the way. These things come from the Lord. We praise the Holy Spirit who guarantees our redemption. He guarantees it. It's a mark. We're sealed. It's a down payment. And he's also a down payment for our heavenly inheritance. Now this week, we want to now start to having rejoiced in that, and you could stay there for a long time. You could read that verse every day with that understanding. But this week, we're going to move a little farther. We're going to go a little deeper with the Lord. We're going to recognize the surpassing greatness of God's power toward you. We sang that song, The Greatness of Our God. And oftentimes, we think of God's power we think of the creation, we think of the storms, we, we think of a lot of things that we can see. But do you realize the power that he has coming, coming towards you, that he's offering you? And how do you know God's power? 
four ways if you take a notes. First of all, God's power can be made known through the intercessory prayers of other believers. A powerful thing happens. We say when prayer takes place, it's like our, it's our artillery, okay? It's the heavy guns. <laughs> they come out and they work to affect God's will in the lives of people. Whatever it is, healing, successful surgery, whatever it is. So God's power can be made known through those intercessory prayers. God's power is connected to knowing the person of God. Knowing the person of God. Knowing, truly knowing him and not just knowing about him. God's power is connected to knowing the promises of God. What we have here in the Bible, the promises of God. And finally, God's power is connected to understanding the preeminence of Christ. And so that's what we're going to cover today. In fact, let's, let's read through our passage today. Ephesians 1, verse 15 through 23. Paul writes, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then he's, this is what he says. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's a prayer template. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance to the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, Jesus, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just, I just ask, Lord God, that you would just calm our hearts right now as we, as we prepare just to hear your truth. May it penetrate the deepest parts of our heart and mind. Help us, Lord, to put aside the things that plague us, the things that we have put in our minds, the problems of the day. Help us, Lord, just to bask in your wonder, your glory, and the truth of your word as we go deeper in our understanding of your love, your great love. And Lord, we know we will not ever stop, we'll never reach the end of our understanding, and that we'll be praising you in all for all eternity. But Lord, give us today just a, just a dose of that, just a sample of that, Lord. And if, you're, if your will is that we should have it poured out upon us, Lord, would you please do that? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? May that be our prayer this morning as we listen to your word. Go before us now, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. So the first uh, point is something that's becoming much more evident in our lives as we as a church have committed to prayer, and many of you have already been prayer warriors for many, many years in your walk with the Lord, and we're starting to see the fruit of prayers. We're starting to see 
changes happen. We're starting to see breakthroughs happening in hearts and minds. And, you know, if that's not God's power, that's, that, I, I like how Paul, he starts off really just wanting to explain. He says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, he, then he goes in and he tells them that he prays for them. You see, the word was out. The word was out about this Ephesian church, of who they were in Christ, that they were, they had really, you know, I mean, this letter was not written to address a problem, like a lot of his letters were written. This letter was written to encourage them and to let them know what he's dealing with, and what, where Paul is, and how much he loves this church that he spent so much time with. But unfortunately, this, this wonderful pairing, if you will, of faith in the Lord and love for each other, it can actually be kind of rare sometimes in the church. We know that, you know, love for others is very, very difficult to find in the world at large. And faith in the Lord seems to be diminishing, but we don't have the eyes of God. We don't know all the things that are happening in this world. Jonathan Swift wrote, uh, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. And sometimes we can find our, ourselves in that place where we've, you know, we've come to faith, but then that second great commandment of loving others, we're struggling with that. And it can get ugly sometimes. And I'm not speaking about a situation or anything like that. Let's, make, let's please understand that. But you guys know as you walk with the Lord, there's a lot of ups and downs in our walk. But Paul says, therefore, notice we always look at the word, we say, therefore, why is it there? Paul's prayer today that we're reading is based on the truth of redemption he just so eloquently declared in verses 3 through 14. What truth, you say? Well, because of the planned, purchased, and guaranteed provision that we have in God. That's what he's rejoicing for. Which they received, and which has now become evident through the practical outworking of their faith and the love that Paul has heard of. So when you believe and you trust in the Lord's promises, whether it's for salvation or your continued growth in the Lord, the outworking becomes practical. Your love for the Lord is unmistakable, but your love for others is very, very noticeable. But I also say that you're not, you're, you know, your, your lack of love for others can be very apparent, especially to those who are outside the church. They want to see what this Christianity is all about, perhaps, and then when they, incur, when they encounter a fellowship or you know, people, when they come home from church and all they do is start talking about people like your kids, and they hear all the stuff and all the drama, the church drama that might be going on, it's a turnoff. And so we need to be guarded. We need to be careful. And also this outworking of love, faith in God, and, and love for each other, it's also obedience. You know, the Lord says to obey is better than sacrifice. It's better than the sacrifice that you give today coming to church. It's better than the sacrifice you might give of your tithes and offerings. Or the good works you do. No, the Lord says to obey is even better. Matthew 22, 37, 34. Jesus said, these are the commandments. This is obedience. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So this outworking, this practical faith causes Paul to say, I do not cease to give thanks. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul's prayer is rich in thankfulness. He is thankful to God for the life and what he's hearing about this church and the things that God is doing in this church. And he says, in fact, I do not cease. He's not restrained. He's committed. I have not stopped, as the NIV says, to give thanks for you. Paul is thankful for them and how their faith and love affects him. He's thankful for that. And he says, making mention of you in my prayers. When you think about this prayer request, it's not like any prayer request that you normally hear. It's not the type of prayer request that we typically bring before the Lord. And I'm not trying to tell you that what we bring before the Lord in our prayers is wrong, not by any stretch. God, God, he answers our prayers in all kinds of ways, as we said. But it's apparent to you and I that most of our public prayers, anyway, deal with common concerns such as health, family, natural disaster, our society, and on and on. But notice here that Paul is praying for the Ephesians while things are going great. Things are going great, and he can't stop praying the Lord about it. Why is that? I mean, normally we come to God in a crisis, right? So many people in, our, in a shallow faith that I've had and that you've probably had, we come to the Lord to get him to fix something. And we're all dedicated for him when that crisis comes. And then after that, we're on our own again. We're walking on our own again. Why? Well, because that's when we tend to let our guard down when things are going good. That's when, we, that's when we really need to be praying constantly to the Lord. Lord, thank you for the wonderful things you're doing in my life and our family and our church family. That's when we need to be pouring out and praying for the Lord. This is Paul's template for us. 1 Peter 5.8 says that we are to be sober, to be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Imagine reading Paul's letter for the first time, maybe as an elder or for, you know, as somebody attends the churches there in Ephesus. How encouraging it must have been for them. And think of your own prayer commitments. It's always encouraging to hear from someone who is praying for you. We see it all the time. And social media, that's the good part of social media. It allows us to, you know, if we're truly praying, it allows us to tell people, you know, not having to wait to write a letter or make a phone call. We can tell people, hey, we're praying for you. And so, you know, maybe you, you, you say, well, my prayers are private. I don't, I don't like, but it's good to share, okay? And, and yes, we have our private prayers with the Lord that we're not to share, but the things that we want to share, it's just an encouragement to let people know, hey, I'm praying for you, but really mean it when you say it. Really mean the fact that you are praying, because oftentimes we get all busy, oh, praying for you, dude, you know, hands up, emoji and all that, and then life goes on, right? <laughs> I mean, we know, you know, let's be honest, okay? One thing social media does is it hides the truth, right? It hides the truth about our, our real true heart, but it doesn't hide it from the Lord. <sighs> but here's something here for us. Here's a challenge for me as a pastor with 130 churches in our area. Are you praying for the things that God's doing in other churches? 
Are you getting excited and thrilled to hear about the faith and love of other Christians? Yeah, it's one thing to be a part of a family, a part of a Calvary Chapel movement or whatever. But are we praying? Do we praise God with the fervency that Paul is here for the work that's being done somewhere else? God's power, next, the next in verse 17, we saw God's power through prayer. We know that the power of prayer is real. We believe in it. We're committed to it. Amen? But God's power is also connected to knowing the person of God. And as I said, and it's so common in our society, uh, maybe we have a shallow faith or a faith that says, I know who doesn't know about Jesus Christ in the modern world? And very few. But knowing about somebody is not the same as knowing somebody. But our shallow faith says, well, I know the Lord when things are getting very difficult. Paul's informed them, and he's been praying, and now he informs them what he is praying for. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm praying for you. What are you praying for? You know, it's interesting to share that. I have, uh, I've developed a little bit of a habit myself. This is just me. When somebody asks for prayer on occasion, I will go ahead and type out the prayer that I'm praying about. Right there. And I know I'm not the only one. I see heads nodding. That way, one, I know I'm praying, and they know I'm praying, and you can express your heart right there if you have the time instead of saying, hey, I'm praying for you, you know, with the emoji thing. I know it's not always possible. But it's a good template. Paul's giving us a good template here on how to pray for others. In verse 17, he says that the Lord... This is what he's praying for. That the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That's his prayer. We don't pray that very often, do we? May he give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Last week we talked about it. It says, may he may give to you, this is from the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul declared that the Holy Spirit had sealed the deal, but it was only the beginning. Our salvation and our sealing in the Holy Spirit is only the beginning. There's more to be had by all Christians. And here he says, the spirit of wisdom. Again, we talked about this last week. What is the spirit of wisdom? Well, it's, it's the heavenly wisdom that you get from the Lord, wisdom and prudence, if you will. It's seeing the direction to take, you know, oftentimes we don't know whether, what direction we need to go in when big decisions come in our life. It's understanding, it, it's, it's insight, it's the ability even to solve simple day-to-day -day problems. You know, why do we always have to take it upon ourselves to do everything? Why can't the Lord give us wisdom in the simplest things? Why can't we just rely on Him that much? We just have these little compartments, especially as us as men. We got this to-do box and, you know, love somebody else box. And we got them all separated. But why can't we just rely on the Lord to give us even the simple instructions in life? And he says, and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this is a disclosure of truth concerning divine things, this revelation. You know when the Lord's working in your heart, when he, you know, even if it's a passage in his word that you've, you've read a thousand times and then all of a sudden it clicks. And you realize, you know what? The Lord is really, when you say, the Lord has spoken to me, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about a divine revelation of understanding. Not a bunch of words to spout off, 
but just saying, the Lord is really speaking to my heart. I really sense him in this situation. I really sense him. He's disclosed the truth into my heart. He talks about knowledge. This is uh, the word epignosis in the Greek. It's the precise and correct knowledge of him. You know, it's a, it's a higher level of knowledge. And I'm not talking about scholarly learning. I'm talking about a deeper understanding of God. David Guzik writes this. He says, our Christian life must be centered around this purpose. To know God as he is in truth, as revealed by his word, and to correct our false, idolatrous ideas of who God is. Now this is not, what he's referring to here is not a saving knowledge because he acknowledges their faith. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I'd like to look at this word knowledge a little bit closer, this epignosis. Uh, R. Kent Hughes wrote this. He said, the regular Greek word for personal knowing is, is gnosis. That's the regular Greek word that would be used that you guys use every day, I'm sure. But here, the word is intensified with the preposition epi, so epignosis. Paul is asking for an epignosis, which is a real deep and full knowledge, a thorough knowledge. Paul wants his beloved Ephesians, who are so full of faith and love, to go deeper and deeper in their knowledge of Christ. I mean, that's amazing. You know, Paul could just say, they're good. I need to concentrate somebody else. <laughs> I need to pray for somebody else. But he's saying, look, you guys are so, things are going well in this church, but I want you, I pray that you would have a deep and thorough knowledge, deeper than you have even now. Second Peter 1, 2, Peter writes to, in his, in his uh, introductory to the letter, he says, grace and peace be multiplied, grace and peace, things of God, okay, divine things that come from God, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That word, epignosis. Now, what about those who actually, you know, think they know God when actually they only know, they only know about him, right? It's, it's the difference is between a one-sided affair, if you will, and it's or, or knowing somebody's statistics. You know, right today you can find out anything about anybody that's the least bit famous on Google or any of the uh, networks, social media sites. You can find out all their statistics. You can find out where they were born, what they like, what they do, how they got rich, how they got poor, why they killed somebody. You can find out everything on the internet and not know them at all, not even know them. But you think you know them. That's a weird thing about what's happening in our society. All this stuff. But they didn't know the person. And the problem with that is because we, we tend to think that because we know all this stuff about them, all these facts, that we actually know them, and now we can make a judgment call. Now we can make a judgment call. But true knowledge is mutual knowledge and a mutual exchange. For a true knowledge of the Lord as Jesus, as your Lord and Savior, it's mutual it's a mutual exchange. 1 Corinthians 8.3, it says, But if anyone loves God, 
This one is known by him. This one is known by him. Next we see that, well, not next yet, but here's, here's something to cap that off. Deeper knowledge of God does what? Multiplies grace and peace. It mo- Think about multiplication factors, multiplication tables, any of you mathematicians in here. You know how multiplication works, right? And a deeper knowledge of the Lord intensifies that grace and peace. It's not head knowledge, but a genuine spirit-driven knowledge that affects a real change in your practical faith, how you walk out, how you live your life, what you truly believe. What you do ends up being what you really believe when it comes to God. Notice that Paul is saying how they are to receive this deeper knowledge of God. It's from God. May he give you by the spirit of wisdom and revelation, only by the Holy Spirit. And again, changing our mindset, recognizing that we can ask God for these blessings on a regular moment-by-moment basis. First Corinthians second. 2, 10, and 11 talks about that. He, he talks about where, he says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. These mysteries, these things of God, these divine knowledge. He says, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows, the things of a man, except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God, except the spirit of God. So Paul's trying to say, you know, if you want to know Things deeper, you want to know the Lord, it's how you know Him. You need to really truly know Him. You have to ask for these spiritual blessings. You have to focus on them because we're very easy, we're scatterbrained. It's easy for us to get distracted. You have to ask for them, you know. Maybe turn off the TV or put down the phone and just ask the Lord to speak to you. Then focus on them. Not only for yourself, but for those that you're praying for. We live in a world, as we know, a world that is self-focused, has. Uh, The writer Sun Tzu uh, wrote that to know yourself, you will win all battles. This self-knowledge. Aristotle said, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Boy, that sounds familiar. John Maxwell, great motivational speaker, Christian. He says, to grow yourself, you must know yourself. Now, is there truth in there? Yes. Guzik writes this. He says, it is important for us to have an accurate knowledge and understanding of who we are. Of course, we don't, you know, you're going to be a hypocrite if you don't understand who you are, if you don't understand, you know, yourself. But it's far more important and beneficial, he adds, for us to know and understand who God is. Far more beneficial for that. Alford writes this, For philosophy comes to man with the message, Know thyself. The gospel meets him with a far more glorious and fruitful watchword, Know thy God. If you're going to set a priority of knowing things, as a believer, start with God. Next we see that God's power is connected to knowing the promises of God. Not only knowing God on a personal basis, but knowing his word. That's where all the promises are in the Bible. That's why we teach the Bible. Knowing the promises of God. 
Paul explains that it's not only is he praying for a better knowledge of Jesus for that church, but he's also praying for a better spiritual vision. He wants, to, he wants them to have eyes that see. Oftentimes, you know, we, we say uh, as uh, in the church, you know, what's the vision? What's the vision of your church? And which pastor, what's your vision? What's your vision? And sometimes I think it's a little bit cliche to be honest with you. If I have a vision, I, it better be through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. And the same with you. The same applies to all of us. He says in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That's the mind, okay? The eyes of your understanding, speaking of the mind, or the eyes of your heart. You know the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. Love that song. We almost did it today, but we didn't. So I'm sorry I put it in your head. Um, but the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Fotizo, to enlighten spiritually, to be flooded with light. To be flooded with light an understanding of the Lord. And you're like, man, I, I can't see anything clearly, okay? I'm going through so much. Sometimes we're like that. But when we seek the Lord, we get clarity. You get clear vision, not just from your corrective lenses, which I'm thankful for. I was sitting on the, uh, having a cup of coffee outside the other day, and uh, I noticed just how good these lenses work, you know? And I was kind of waking up. I'm like, Lord, you know? But it made me think, you know, sort of a spiritual moment, I guess. Made me think, Thank you for giving me enlightenment. Thank you for putting the light of your truth in my life. Just as we see that backyard that needs work. <laughs> we live in a fallen world. You guys know that. Right? Fallen leaves. Fallen tree. No, nah, never mind. Never mind. <clears throat> Say that to yourself. Then you have a nice big bonfire after that. But he says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what? The hope of his calling. You know, just to have the light shine. Okay, what are we shining the light on? And he starts out with the hope. He says, the hope of his calling. Concerning the past, concerning your salvation. The divine invitation to embrace salvation. And the hope concerning the future. The fact that you have eternal life. You, have, you will have freedom from sin. You will have perfect fellowship with God and each other. And each other. It would be perfect. He says that you would know the hope of his calling. And then he says, what are the riches that you would know? What the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now he's talking about for sure concerning the future. Fullness. Abundance of the majesty the inheritance of the saints. That's the guarantee that you got. That's the down payment you got when the Holy Spirit sealed you. And you get a little bit of taste of the divine when those moments happen in your life. Those Holy Spirit moments. But the fullness now, the riches of your full inheritance. It's what you and I are going to believe be to God in heaven. You know, we're, we're, we're not there, obviously not there yet. But that's what we live for. The future riches that he's promised us. And he goes on, and now Paul, he's, he's using these Greek synonyms, if you will, this power language. He just keeps, as one writer says, he stacks one upon the other. He's, using, he's trying to exhaust the language to express just how great God is. Instead of saying, the greatness of our God, 
He says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? He stacks those meanings. You know, words mean something. These words mean something. Greatness, megathos, his power, dunamis, um, you know, energia, kratos, strength. I think, you know, that's why people say if you really want to know what the Bible says, you need to learn Greek. You need to know it well. And I don't know if I'm going to have enough time in my life to do that. But that doesn't mean the Lord doesn't speak to us. It's, that's, a, that's sort of a side issue. But the, the, Paul, is what he's doing is he's saying, you know, this power goes on and on. It's so great. Let me explain something to you. It's superhuman. It's supernatural. One writer talks about a better spiritual vision, which is what Paul wants them to have, is a better spiritual vision. And he says, as in our physical life, so it is with our soul. Virtually everything depends on our sight. King Zedekiah had his eyes gouged out by the king of Babylon. He was taken to that fabled city, but saw nothing of her tiled palaces and hanging gardens or the brass gates. He was blinded. We don't need more truth or better truth because that's impossible. God's word is complete. We simply need our spiritual eyes open to the truth that surround us. And that will keep us occupied, friends. That will keep us occupied. If we'll get away from the the little flat screen idols, the little flat screen trinkets that we have, or the big ones. You say, well, you, you just don't believe in watching TV. Yes, I do. I watch football, baseball, <laughs> certain things. <laughs> basketball. No, I don't watch much basketball. Any, everything in its place. We don't want to be legalistic here. But we know that things that will fill us up, that will prevent us from pursuing a deeper knowledge of God. And to open the truth, having our eyes open to the truth. So again, he's asking for three things. He's asking for hope, riches, and power. Isn't that what everybody wants? Hope, riches, and power? That's what the world is driving us for, but it's all material things. That's the difference. It's all material things. Hope of his calling. Hope is the opposite of despair, right? Because God planned our redemption before creation and we've already tasted the power of the Holy Spirit through the down payment we possess and it's massive blessing. First uh, John, John 3, 2 and 3. He writes, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. Now we are children of God. You're saved and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And look at verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope that God gives us actually helps us in our walk through holiness. To be set aside to be used by him. And then he talks about riches. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He wants us to understand how valuable we are to him. How valuable we are to God. You could say, well, God doesn't need nothing. You're true. You're right. He doesn't need anything. But he places such a high value on us that he considers that to be eternal riches. And then he says, power. The exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. 
Now you may have a wayward child or a grandchild, a prodigal. And maybe we need to learn. You know, we're talking about opening spiritual eyes. And Paul's prayer is, he's saying, I pray that you Ephesians would have your eyes opened. And it's an important thing for us to understand when we get frustrated about those who don't either live up to our expectations or we see they're not living for the Lord, they're not walking with the Lord. And the question is, is have you and I learned yet that you can't force anybody to do anything unless their spiritual eyes are opened? You can't force change. You can't force them to change by our will, our uninvited suggestions into their life, or their nagging questions, or continual probing. It doesn't help. It doesn't stop until God steps in and opens their eyes. And again, I think this letter is going to help us to change our way of thinking as we approach prayer. I know the frustration of a prodigal. Okay, I know what that's like. But I also know what doesn't work. I'm learning what doesn't work. And we're praying. We continue to pray. And the Lord knows that too. But why not get there, you know, maybe quicker? Just pray that their eyes would be open. If that's all you can do, pray that their eyes would be open to the things of God. And don't give up. We can pray that he will open their spiritual eyes and their understanding by doing what? Flooding their minds with his marvelous light. You see, that's when the change starts to happen, when it all starts to click. And what's marvelous about this is that we're in Christ. You know, we're actually in, you know, Christ, we're in him. Not, not just, I know Jesus, I go to church, I read the Bible. No, we're in Christ. And therefore, we're connected with all of this that he's given us. All of it, we're connected. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that allows you and I to overcome sin. The same power. To see our prayers answered, to have peace in the storm of life, and someday we will see our own bodies being resurrected to meet with the Lord. The power of God. And so do you, do you get that kind of vision? I would challenge you to think about that. What is your vision for prayer and how you pray to others? Pray and ask God, Father in heaven, may I see and get to know Jesus better today. Will you grant me the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation? Will you fill me with your spirit? But the enemy might just say something like, you know it's not that easy. And you need to tell him to get behind you. Because that's not what the word tells us. Finally, if God's power can be made known through intercessory prayers of other believers, if God's power is connected to knowing the person of God, if God's power is connected to knowing the promises of God, we also see here in the last passage, last part of our uh, today's study, that God's power is connected to understanding the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ. He's high above all things. And we're going to see that. Verse 19, it said, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his mighty power? Verse 20, Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. As we said, that power of resurrection. God's power over death 
and Christ's resurrection. Now the question is often asked, you know, if you were to ask a question, what do you think God's greatest miracle is? You've heard this before probably. What do you think his greatest miracle ever performed? You might say, you know, his creation of the universe or his parting of the Red Sea. But none of these things are being mentioned in connection with his power. None of these things. Instead, we see the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And so he raised him from the dead, resurrection, and they, he, he seated him, Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places. So God's power in resurrection, God's power in the ascension of Christ. He sits at his right hand, figuratively speaking. Psalm 110.1, the Psalm of David, it says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so he has raised Jesus, so the power of resurrection and ascension, and he's placed him up where he is, where God exists, in the heavenly places, the abode of God and the angels. And this is where you have access to, do you realize you have access to, when you see a James Webb telescope picture, I only need to see one. One Hubble picture of the vastness of the universe. That's all I need to see. I don't need to look at picture after picture after picture. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't need to continue to look at those images to be confirmed once again that God is above all these things and he actually sits above that. This vast universe that we can't see the ends of. He sits above there. And I have access to him through Christ. His heavenly abode. I mean, it, let's, let the word of the Lord renew your mind in understanding that. There's a lot of things you can ponder in your mind. I say ponder that one for a little while. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. See, Jesus has a much higher rank than any spiritual, created spiritual being. Angels, demons, or people. Jesus has a much higher rank much more powerful, might and dominion. And the reason is that every name that is named, in other words, no matter who you have, no historical figure, no great angel that you read of in the Bible, nor Satan, nor any of the demons, has anything worth being above, can never be above the Lord. Not only in this age presently, where believers live under God's rule, but also in the age to come when all of the universe and all of the earth will come under power directly of Jesus himself. So among things that the ascension, you know, the ascension of Jesus, what does it do for us? It completes resurrection that we share in. The resurrection wants to come to life, but another to be ascended into heaven. The first fruits of his people, the ministry of intercession we talked about, the dispenser of the Holy Spirit. These are the things that we realize because Jesus is ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father and we receive them. But most of all, Jesus is exaltation above everything, above every created intelligence, angelic, demonic, or human. He quotes uh, this guy Armitage, Armitage Robinson uh, this writer quotes him. He says, uh, Robinson wrote this. Or he said, above all, 
that anywhere is or anywhere can be, above all grades of dignity, real or imagined, good or evil, present or to come, the mighty power of God has exalted and enthroned the Christ. So anything that you're worried about, you know, you think, put it in perspective. What your eyes see in all the world's problems, we get to have, just to have the thought of where Christ is can help us if we will believe it. Because we're in him. And we have his promises. Paul makes sure in verse 22, he puts all things under his feet. This is in the absolute sense. All things that exist, all created things ever made. God's power and Christ's rule over all things. Placing under his feet, that's a, a figure of speech Paul is using from the ancient world where an enemy was vanquished and the king could put his, his foot on the head or the neck of his defeated foe. But notice at the end of 22, it says, and gave him Jesus to be head over all things to the church. Now we've talked about all the created things and any name that's been named and any higher authorities and principalities in the, in the spiritual world, but now he comes back to us, the church. It, this really speaks of the value that he's placed upon us, folks. Understand that, the value. You may, you may not think much of yourself, or you may think too much of yourself, whatever it is. But know what God thinks of you. And when it's all said and done, he loves his church. He loves his body. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Again, Paul has nearly exhausted the Greek language in describing Jesus as God the Father sees him. Absolute sovereign Lord of the universe. But here we see something incredible. God also appointed Christ to be head over all things to the church. Verse 23, the church, which is his body. You're part of his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. A couple of thoughts. Hughes writes. He says, first of all, we are the body which complements the head. This means there is a subtle and vital union between Christ and us. Thinking of our union in terms of an actual body. You know, how everything is connected. We realize that the body is not a bunch of loose parts somehow attached to each other. You know, there's the nerves and the blood vessels and the skin, and it's beautifully made. You are wonderfully and beautifully made as a body all connected to your head. There's a living connection. Now we, as the body of Christ, actually share and will share in the resurrection. We know that. We will share in his exaltation. We will share in the lordship of the head of the universe with the church, and that's Jesus Christ. The second thing is that as the body, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all, or in other words, in every way. Paul's using a paradox to teach us another deep truth, if you will. 
How can the creator of the universe, who needs nothing from us, be filled or complemented by the church? How is it that we complete him? And you might say, yeah, how is it? The answer is simple. A head is incomplete without a body. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, a body needs a head, and you cannot think of a head without a body, so the body and the head are one, in a very, let's admit it, a mystical sense. But think of it as a wedding. The bridegroom is not complete without the bride. A vine is not complete without the branches. A shepherd is incomplete without sheep, and the head is not complete without the body. So the church is the complement of Christ. When you think about it, and you maybe have seen those, again, telescope pictures, those high-tech telescope pictures of this vast universe and all the stars and solar systems and galaxies and planets, and you realize that you're worth more than all of heaven to Christ. You're worth more than all of that, all that he created. And as we learned last week, he created us, and then he went to the cross so that he could buy us back. You've been bought twice when you think about it that way. So the question is, considering that, considering Jesus as your Redeemer, is he also the Lord of your life? Is he really truly the Lord who's exalted over all things in your life? Or is he just the one who died on a cross to give you eternal life and now you're living your life any way you see fit? Knowing that, hey, I got my salvation. I got my, my ticket punched. And he doesn't want that for us. There's more. There's more for us. But you can't receive it if you don't re really believe that he's the Lord. And that he means that much to you. So do you truly believe it? Given the lofty position that he's placed us, do you truly believe it? I pray that we do. I pray that we will continue to learn it because it's just sometimes difficult. We know that. So let's commit to praying for one another. And let's think about how we pray for one another, not just for their needs. That's a wonderful thing. We bring that stuff to the Lord all the time. Praise God. But how about that our spiritual eyes will be opened to the truth, his wonderful, marvelous light which surround us presently that we oftentimes cannot see. How about that? Will you let his light shine his truth into your heart today? Amen. Let's finish. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you. Lord, I just pray that for each of us, myself included, that we'd see beyond the things that happen within, that we'd see beyond of our, our circumstances of the day, and just have a, a clearer vision from you, a clearer spiritual vision from you about what's important in our lives and where we place them. 
And maybe the realization of just how important. And we won't know the whole story till we get to heaven. We won't have the fullness of understanding. We won't know you and we won't know ourselves fully until we step stand in your presence. And what a glorious day that's going to be. And it'll only be the first day of all of our eternal days with you. But Lord, I pray that would you let your light, would you crack through the darkness, would you crack through any kind of spiritual blindness that we experience here in this church and the families that are represented here? Would you break through? Would you flood your light of truth, your glorious and marvelous light into our hearts and minds? And may the outworking be faith, maybe make you known, make you famous in the lives of people around us. Lord, may we always know and say that all glory must go to you. We thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness, for your inexhaustible patience with us, Lord. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for how much you love us. Go before us today. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, let's stand and we'll, we'll recite our final prayer. And James is going to lead us in a worship song. Stretch it out. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.